On this episode of Blue 58, the Packers have a strong defensive line, which means that this year's NFL draft is a great opportunity to make that strength even stronger. Let's explore a few guys who could help them do just that before asking a difficult question. What do you do with a guy who's done some bad things? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast, thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here. For another episode, we are just over two weeks away from the NFL Draft, and we're getting right down to it. This one's a tough one because we're exploring an area where the Packers are actually pretty well stocked, but that doesn't mean that you just rest on your laurels a little bit. As we saw last year, another season in which the Packers headed into the year, fairly deep on the defensive line, depth can often be, if not an illusion, something that can disappear relatively quickly. You get an injury to Muhammad Wilkerson here, an injury to Mike Daniels there that lingers a little bit. Suddenly you're down to starters and you're having to rotate in guys like Montrevious Adams or Tyler Lancaster or even late in the season, James Looney. That's not necessarily your preferred group. Depth can disappear quickly. And this year is much the same. Muhammad Wilkerson, still a significant question question mark. And in fact, not even officially on the field, on the team, rather, right now. And beyond that, Mike Daniels is in a contract year, as is Dean Lowry. The Packers have some depth for this year. But the year after, the year after that, it's a big question mark. This could be the time when the Packers choose to strengthen that strength. Should they choose to add to their defensive line group, what sort of players are they looking for? Well, I know I harp on versatility a lot, but that's really it for Mike Pettin. But it's a different kind of versatility than elsewhere. Last week, we looked at defensive backs. And at corner in particular, you need a certain kind of versatility if you really prize versatility. You can... Get by with guys who can just do one thing. You need more of them, but you can do that. But if you're going for versatile defensive backs, they need very specific skill sets and specific physical traits. At defensive line, I think versatility comes down to more being like interchangeable parts. You'd rather have a bunch of guys that are similar height and weight, uh, not necessarily different body types, as in other position groups where you're looking for versatility, but maybe all around, you know, between 6'2 and 6'4 and around 300 pounds or so. That gives you the bulk to play inside while having the length and potential quickness to play outside. Those are the kind of guys that the Packers have tended towards. Kenny Clark is a good example. Dean Lowry is probably an even better example. When healthy, Muhammad Wilkerson might be the best example of all. And you can see what they've tried to get with some other guys at that position. Montrevious Adams is a little bit light, but he has the good... Uh, height and length that they look for. James Looney is even lighter still, but he has great quickness and can match up well with guys on the edge with that quickness and then overwhelm guys inside by being quicker on passing downs as well. So while you do need some skill set that can transfer from position to position, there is more to be said for physical attributes. Those physical attributes as we transition into looking at some actual guys, are going to lead to a few different fits. And as we've said all along, we're doing this a little bit different than we've done in the past. While the Packers do have some well-defined 
physical traits that they look for at certain position groups. We're trying to get a, a, a little bit away from that this year. Everybody seems to be talking about athletic profiles now, and that's fine. That's a good way to do it, but we want to go a little bit deeper than that. We're looking at five different kinds of players that the Packers could select this year. The best fit, the worst fit, a potential sleeper, a small school prospect, and then a wild card. When I say worst fit, I would kind of like to amend that a little bit too. Worst fit is not really good or helpful. It doesn't really help us to look at a guy who is the quote-unquote worst fit. You just pick some random seventh-round pick who's, well, we're looking at defensive lines. You pick a guy who's 5'11 and and 260 pounds. Yep, that's a pretty terrible fit for the NFL, but that doesn't help anybody. What we are, what I would like to talk about when we talk about guys who are a bad fit for the Packers is instead look at guys who have all the physical attributes that you might look for from a particular position but may not be necessarily good pros. A couple episodes we looked at tight ends, and I think we had a really good example there. Zach Gentry out of Michigan is a fine college player, and he's six foot eight and 260 pounds. That sounds like a prototypical tight end of sorts, but there's a lot of things about his game that make him not necessarily a good fit in the NFL. That's something that I think we want to look at uh, as we look at each of these position groups, and we'll talk about that on the defensive line here in a second. So if we're looking for versatility, if we're looking for guys that are in that you know, six foot two, six foot three, 300 to 315 pounds or so kind of range. What does that get us? Well, I think the absolute best fit on the defensive line this year is Quinnen Williams of Alabama. And this is a little bit pie in the sky, but he, because he's probably going to be a top five pick, maybe even top three or four at six foot three, 303 pounds. This is the guy that gets all the positive stuff from Alabama that I've talked about in the past. I think there's two kinds of Alabama players that you get. You get guys that are kind of refined by the crucible that is Alabama football and guys that get a little bit burnt out by it. William seems like the guy that has been refined into the best version of himself by Nick Saban and company rather than burned out. It wasn't really inevitable that it was going to get to this point for Williams though, because although he was a well-regarded recruit, even in the not-too-distant past, nobody was really quite sure what to make of him. USA Today wrote a really good piece about that move for Williams, and here's how they kind of set it up. Quote, How did someone who redshirted as a freshman and was largely lost in the shuffle as a sophomore come back in his third year and become unblockable in the SEC? It started with a position change this past offseason, sliding Williams from defensive end to the nose guard position in the middle of Saban's defense. It was, essentially, the move William had to make if he wanted to get on the field, and it required him to eat his way over 300 pounds after arriving at Alabama as a sleek 260-pound edge rusher who relied on quickness, end quote. Well, that seemed to work out for Mr. Williams because after making that move, bulking up, becoming a 300-pound monster now, he's now set to become a very, very high draft pick. But what makes him the best fit? Well, he's got the explosiveness that you expect from a, a great athlete, even among other NFL caliber athletes. He's got the size to line up as a more traditional defensive tackle, but also as a defensive end, depending on your scheme. And he's had success on the biggest stages of college football. There's a reason that a lot of good defensive linemen, even offensive linemen, come out of the SEC. They do their business against other great linemen 
every single week. They're refined by some of the best competition that you can find on the planet outside of the NFL. Plus, even though I already said he's a great athlete, he's probably an even better athlete than most people give him credit for. He did excellent in the NFL combine at the 40-yard dash, which is not super helpful for defensive line, but it's still a, a fairly good measure of athletic ability to a certain extent. He ran a 4.8740 yard dash. Pretty good. Good to great, even, you could say. But he thought he could do better. His agent said, don't do that. You can only hurt yourself. Both literally, you could hurt yourself running a 40-yard dash. But also, what if you run a worse time? It hurts your stock. Fortunately, he didn't have to worry about that because he did even better and ran a 4.83 40-yard dash. According to ESPN Stats and Info, that is the fourth fastest time by any player weighing 300 pounds or more at the Combine since 2006. And it's also faster than J.J. Watt ran, who put up a 484 at 290 pounds. It's faster than Geno Atkins, who ran a 485 at 293. And it's faster than Deron Payne, who ran a 4.9 flat at 311 pounds in 2018. Now, that is 8 pounds more than Williams, but still, that's cooking for a big guy. And Williams beat them all. He's a great athlete. He's going to go high in the draft. And I don't think the Packers have to worry about making the call on the defensive line at 12 when it comes to Williams because he's probably not going to be around. Now, there is the case to be made that this is the sort of player who could be worth trading up for should he fall to 7 or 8 or something like that. But I don't think, again, the Packers really have to worry about it. I think a team ahead of them is just going to do the obvious thing and draft a really good player. Sometimes the talent is so good that you just don't think about it. You just take them and, you know, draft slot. Notwithstanding, you put him on your team and try to do the best you can with him. And he's probably going to make you pretty smart, look pretty smart, if you would happen to do just that. Should the Packers have the chance to take Quinn and Williams? They probably should. I doubt they will, though. Moving on to worst fit, and again, in air quotes on worst fit for the reasons that I said earlier, we have Jerry Tillery of Notre Dame. Tillery is interesting. Um, at six foot six, 295 pounds, he presents a bit of a problem. I think on the defensive line, you can be tall or you can be light, but I don't think he can be both. And at 6'6 six, six and 295 pounds, he is both tall and a little bit light. I think Dean Lowry shows why this can be a problem. He too is about the same, six foot six, six five and a half, something like that. And when he came out, he was in that mid two hundred ninety pound range, and that was a problem for him early on in his career with the Packers. You have to learn a lot more about how to use your body effectively if you're a little bit on the lighter side, because two hundred ninety five pounds isn't particularly big, especially if you're playing in a defense where you're only going to have three linemen on the field at once. To a lesser extent, you also see Kyler Fackrell here, who's a little on the light side for his height, on the edge of the defense. It hasn't been as big of a problem for him as his career has gone on because he too has figured out to use his other physical attributes to offset for his lack of bulk. But the difference between Lowry and Fackrell and Tillery is that both Lowry and Fackrell, as I've said, are above average athletes for their height-weight combination. 
but Tillery is average at best. Mockdraftable.com is a great resource for comparing how a guy performed in the combine to other people of comparable heights and weights and positions. And Tillery does not compare particularly well. In the 40-yard dash, he comes in at just the 53rd percentile. In the vertical leap, 58th. In the broad jump, a bit better at 72nd. In the three-cone drill, testing his agility, 44th. And in the 20-yard shuttle, he maxes out in the 81st percentile. Compared to against other guys who are of similar height and weight and also play on the defensive line, he's just not that great of an athlete. So I wonder if he's just going to get pushed around a little bit. There is a flip side to this. With that height comes some pretty good length. And if you can add a little bit of bulk to go at that length, that can be a pretty good attribute. Light guys don't have to necessarily stay light, but it is a little bit of a concern. And for me, that makes Tillery maybe a suboptimal fit for the Packers. At least as high as 30, maybe not at 44 or beyond. Still, maybe not the sort of freakish athlete that you've come to expect from Brian Gutekunst and company. Moving on to our sleeper, let's talk for a moment about Tristan Hill out of Central Florida. At six foot two and 308 pounds, he's intriguing right off the bat for one reason, in that he is a true junior. He has not had to redshirt, which is a little bit uncommon for defensive linemen and even offensive linemen. A lot of times, guys making the transition from high school football to college football really haven't grown into their bodies yet and can't compete with the other man-sized football players on the defensive line. That was not the case for Hill. He got down to business right away in Central Florida. The Packers have already brought Hill in for a visit, and he almost projects as kind of a perfect sleeper because he doesn't have some of the traditional physical measurables that the Packers look for, except maybe he does. He is not a great overall athlete in some ways. His 40-yard dash was not great for his size, although if you compare him to Quinn and William, he looks especially poor at 5.04 seconds. Not great. Not the worst thing in the world, but not great either. On the bench, a little bit underwhelming too at just 21 reps. But what Hill does have is explosion. His vertical leap, his broad jump, and his 20-yard shuttle were all above average. So you've got vertical explosiveness, uh, horizontal explosiveness, and agility there. That's really great too. And he's used that to great effect in college. Dane Brugler for The Athletic writes, quote, Hill was routinely the first defensive lineman to cross into enemy territory on tape, quickly finding the football and making plays in the hole, end quote. So that raises the obvious question. If he's so athletic, if he's so explosive, if he was so productive that he could get on the field as a true freshman, play as a true sophomore and a true junior, why is he kind of projected as a day two, maybe early day three pick? Well, he had some rather consistent disagreements with his coaches to the point that it affected his playing time his final year at the University of Central Florida. He started the first 26 games of his career, but ended up coming off the bench in 2018 because of repeated instances of run-ins with the coaching staff. Lance Zerline kind of outlines how that ended up for Hill. Quote, Hill did not end his career at UCF on a positive note. He barely played in the team's Fiesta Bowl loss to LSU, made it clear he was unhappy about his playing time after the game, and did not thank the team's current coaching staff in the note in which he made his declaration for early entry into the NFL draft. 
Hale had been a major factor in the Knights' win in the American Athletic Conference Championship game, making six tackles, three for loss, and two sacks, end quote. So he comes off that great performance, but then doesn't play pretty much at all in a significant bowl game on a significant stage for UCF. That should be a red flag, and rightly so. The Packers, no doubt, will ask him about that, and if they're comfortable with his personality, should probably feel pretty comfortable making him a day two or day three pick. I wouldn't think of this guy as a potential first-round pick. I don't think anybody really does, but the explosion there and the undeniable productivity in college are worth keeping an eye on. Let's talk about a small school prospect. I'd like to bring to your mind John Kaminsky of Charleston. This is not Charleston, South Carolina. This is Charleston, West Virginia, the Division II school. And Kaminsky is an interesting story. uh, And he's the kind of player that just turns into a walking cliche generator. Let's paint the picture. He started his high school, well, he started his college career transitioning from high school option quarterback into college defensive end. He enrolled at just 218 pounds. Since then, he has put on bulk every single year to the point that he now weighs 286 pounds and stands just over six feet, five inches tall. And like I said, he is a walking cliche generator, and it's probably at least a little bit in part because he's a white dude with a sensible haircut. Don't believe me? Read a couple lines from his scouting report. Quote, looks the part. Next bullet point, grinds away in the weight room. Next down the list, praised for his work to become more cerebral in his approach. Plays with desired aggression in field demeanor. You start talking about a guy's personality and his grit right off the bat. It's probably an average looking white dude. It goes a little bit deeper than that for this particular individual though. Here is what George Thomas of Ohio.com had to write of Mr. Kaminsky in his pre-draft profile. And you can just picture the cheesiest of cheesy NFL films music underneath this. Quote, In Northeast Ohio, as much as perhaps any region of the country, dreams of gridiron glory often fill the heads of young men. Barberton's John Kaminsky is no different. He arrived at the Division II University of Charleston in West Virginia, a six foot four, 215 pound quarterback with little fanfare and not a lot of athletic scholarship aid. But after transforming himself physically, he's leaving as a six five and a quarter, 286 pound defensive end who put himself on the NFL's radar. And now a quote from Kaminsky. My mom showed me an essay I wrote. I don't know, maybe I was like in second grade. It was just my plans for the future. I had super high goals for myself even at a young age. And I was like, I'm going to be an NFL player. It's definitely been in my mind since I can remember, since first having an intelligent thought. End quote. The cheese just rolls off this guy. But he's been an undeniably productive player. Even though he hasn't played against the highest level of competition, he does what you ask him to do when a great athlete plays against lower level competition. He dominates. 
He's been productive. He's been recognized with uh, all-conference award after all-conference award playing at Charleston. And he's turned out to be a very, very good athlete. He ran a 4.69 40-yard dash at a decent vertical and a decent broad jump at 6.5 and a quarter and 286 pounds. There's a reason people are talking about this guy. And sometimes, even if they wax a little bit poetic, you can see what they're looking at. Still is a question if he can do it against NFL caliber players after playing in the lower division of uh, relatively big-time college football. But still, it seems like he's got a relatively good shot at at least getting drafted this year. Finally, let's talk about our wild card. And this is probably a player you're going to be surprised that I didn't mention at the very tip top. I'm talking about Ed Oliver of Houston. If I had to pick one guy for the Packers to take in the NFL draft, it would probably be this guy. But he is still a wild card. And he's a wild card because I'm not quite sure anybody knows actually what he is. And that could be a good thing. He is almost impossibly athletic. Just look up the numbers yourself. I would read you the numbers where he is exceptional, but I'd end up just reading everything that he did at the Combine. He tests like a linebacker, and nobody even really knows if he's played his best position yet, And in part because nobody really seems to know exactly what to do with him. And I feel like I've said variations of that like three or four different times already, but it's true. Everything you read about Ed Oliver kind of comes across the same. Great athlete, productive in college, might not have played his best position. Nobody seems to know what that position is. Lance Zerline of NFL.com has probably the best example of that. Let's just read his first, his entire intro to Ed Oliver. Quote, Twitched up ball of explosive fury from the moment he comes out of his stance, but his lack of NFL size and length creates challenges with his NFL projection. Oliver's athletic ability is beyond rare, but his ability to add and maintain mass could be the critical could be the critical factor for his future success. He creates early advantages but must convert them into early disruption to prevent NFL size from swallowing him. Scheme fit will be critical, with shade, nose, or three technique as the obvious considerations. If Oliver's frame is maxed out, he might possess the speed, toughness, and instincts to transition to an inside linebacker role. End quote. Ed Oliver is a little bit undersized for what he did in college. He was a defensive tackle-ish type thing, type guy, who played at around six foot two or six foot three and two hundred eighty-ish pounds. And I've talked to people who don't believe that he weighs even quite that much. But he is a special athlete, but not the kind of athlete that doesn't transcend scheme, if that makes sense. He's not the same kind of special athlete as Calvin Johnson or, if you want to talk about defense, like a J.J. Watt or a Jadavian Clowney or something like that. You don't really have to build around those guys. They just kind of are. They're like, well, to use a real cliche term, they are literal stars. They're stars in the NFL, but they're like stars, you know, out in space. They're so big, they're so unusual that they affect everything around them. Stars are so big and so massive that they affect the literal space-time around them. They bend everything else that's around them. Those are the kind of athletes that Calvin Johnson and J.J. Watt are. And Ed Oliver is also a special kind of athlete, but it seems like he's a different special kind of athlete than those guys are. 
but he's still amazing. And I think that's a concern too, because sometimes you can end up ruining a guy who's really amazing and talented and versatile just because you try to do too much with him. For the Packers in the not-too-distant past, Micah Hyde was a little bit that way. And Ed Oliver is the Micah Hyde problem times 100. Hyde could do so many different things for the Packers, they kept trying to have him do too many things instead of just let him do one or two things really well. And he's gone on and done those one or two things really well in Buffalo. But still, even without having a position, Ed Oliver has been plenty good. Houston's official profile of Mr. Oliver lists more than 75 different awards and recognitions from him, his time there. And it's way more than 75. I just counted to 75 and got sick of it and decided to stop. He has also had quite possibly the stupidest imaginable blow up with his college coach during a late season game last year against Tulane. Sam Kahn Jr. wrote about this for ESPN, and I've just got to read you a couple paragraphs of that report. Applewhite, quoting now, approached Oliver, who has missed four consecutive games because of an injured knee on the Houston sideline before halftime and removed the lineman's jacket from his shoulder. Gasped the horror. Oliver could then be seen shouting at Applewhite as the team walked towards its locker room at halftime and was restrained by Houston Director of Sports Performance, Rod Grace. Applewhite said after the game, Oliver left the locker room and that he hadn't spoken to him since, but emphasized that he wanted the Outland Trophy winner back. The coach said the team has a rule regarding the jackets. He doesn't want players wearing them, regardless of whether they are playing, and he wanted to treat Oliver equally. He said Oliver became, quote, emotional after the coach asked him to remove the jacket. And now head coach Major Applewhite speaks. Quote, we just have a rule on the sideline that guys who are participating in the games and specifically starters, that they have the jacket so they can stay warm. As a coach who has coached and played for years, you don't want a thousand guys in jackets when it's only 50 degrees outside. You want guys to stand up, be off the bench, be tough. And some guys had them early on. I asked them to take them off and Ed had had one. So I asked him to take it off because I don't want to be unfair and unequal to other guys. And you know, he got emotional. But he's young, and that's what happens, and he's not playing, and that's hard, and that's difficult. I don't hold anything against anyone, end quote. What a stupid situation. Just let guys wear jackets on the sidelines when it's 50 degrees out in Texas. We're not fighting World War I out here. We're playing football. And if you want to stay warm on the sideline, where you're going to be standing around for three and a half hours, not playing in a game, just let them wear the jacket. Let anybody who wants to wear a jacket. You're a football program at a good-sized university in the United States of America in 2019. Chances are you've got more money than you know what to do with. You can afford jackets for everybody. That's my thought on Ed Oliver. At the very least, if nothing else, I will support him in all jacket-related confrontations he may have with any coach, past, present, or future. That is for sure. While I've got you here, I would like to talk about perhaps the most unique defensive lineman in terms of draft considerations in this year's class. I'm talking about Jeffrey Simmons. He would have been probably a top 15 pick, probably maybe a top 10 pick, possibly in consideration for the Packers at 12th overall if he had not torn his ACL while preparing for the draft. That's strike one against him. He also has what could be the reddest of red flags 
that you can have in 2019. Prior to enrolling in college, Jeffrey Simmons was caught on video assaulting a woman. And there are some extenuating circumstances there, depending on who you ask. If you ask Simmons, there certainly are. Um, But there was a scuffle. Some words were said. And at some point, he ended up smacking this woman who is on the ground in ways that would seem, at the very least, completely unnecessary. Probably the most defensible way you could put it. He has apologized for that. He didn't necessarily face tons of consequences for that. But I've got to ask, at what point do you stop considering guys for off-the-field stuff? And is there a statute of limitations? Is there a point at which you say you did your debt to society and now you're forgiven? And can we forgive people at all in 2019? I don't know if this is the best case in which we should be asking about forgiveness. And this certainly isn't to say that he should be forgiven. That's not what I'm trying to get at here. The question that I'm asking, though, is can anybody ever get to that point? There are going to be players who do worse things than Jeffrey Simmons did. And there have been guys that have been convicted of much worse stuff and have been allowed to resume their lives, both inside the NFL and outside the NFL. And that's kind of the point, right? At some point, the entire purpose of punishment, in addition to, you know, some sort of retribution for the thing that you did wrong is to help you become a better person. And if you have endured that thing and the justice has been served, when do the rest of us back off? I'm not asking because I have an answer here. I'm asking because I I want to find an answer. And we see this in so many different ways throughout our culture now. People get dragged all the time now for things that they did years and years ago. Things they said when they were different people than they are now. And if we can't ever absolve ourselves from stupid things that we've done in the past, that's a problem for everybody. I'm glad I don't have to decide on Jeffrey Simmons, but I do think this is a conversation we need to have, both within football and without, because if we're not a culture that allows people to change and find forgiveness and to move on with their lives, that's pretty scary for all of us. That's all I've got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for listening, for downloading. I really appreciate everybody who takes the time. If you like what you heard and you want to help us keep things going, the best way to support us is by rating and reviewing on iTunes. It helps more people find the show. If you want to take that support to the next level, the best way to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. And don't forget to check out our great t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com as well. If you've got an idea for the show or just want to say hi or ask a question or something, reach out at thepowersweep.com on Facebook and on Twitter or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We do appreciate anybody who takes the time to reach out. As always, every bit of feedback you give us helps us make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better, which furthers our mission of helping 
all of us become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.